I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 57 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week and next is a producer, club owner, label owner, and author who has had a massive impact on music, Joe Boyd. He produced Pink Floyd, Fairport Convention, The Incredible String Band, Nick Drake, Richard Thompson with and without Linda Thompson, as well as 10,000 Maniacs, and perhaps my favorite R.E.M. album. He also founded Hannibal Records, boosted world music, played a key role in one of Aretha Franklin's triumphs, and was a force behind one of the unlikeliest smash singles of the 1970s. In part one of this two-parter, we hear about how this American in London hit the ground running. He previously worked sound at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965 when Bob Dylan caused a ruckus by going electric. He moved to London to open the Electra Records office there, and he also opened the underground UFO club, or UFO as he pronounces it. That short-lived, now legendary London club became known for its house bands, Pink Floyd and The Soft Machine, as well as performances by other groups such as The Move, Procol Harum, and Tomorrow. Boyd produced Pink Floyd's first single, Arnold Lane, before the band was moved to EMI in-house producer Norman Smith for The Piper at the Gates of Dawn. What did Boyd think of how that album turned out? Boyd maintained a longer association with Fairport Convention, the British folk rock group whom he managed and produced. He explains here how he initially was resistant to the band before being wowed by young guitarist Richard Thompson and then won over by new lead singer Sandy Denny and her traditional English approach. But after the triumph of Fairport's album Unhalfbreaking, much of the band was in a horrific car crash that killed drummer Martin Lamble, as well as Thompson's then-girlfriend. Boyd recalls how Fairport rebounded from this tragedy and how new drummer Dave Maddox transformed the band's sound. Boyd also produced and nurtured the more psychedelic-leaning British folk group The Incredible String Band, which had greater U.S. success than Fairport at the time. Although Boyd says he has few regrets, his biggest one may involve The Incredible String Band and Woodstock. He explains. Then there was Nick Drake, the soft-voiced singer-songwriter who would achieve the bulk of his success and popularity after his overdose death in 1974. Boyd produced the first two of Drake's three studio albums, Five Leaves Left and Brighter Later. Saturday sun came without warning. Boyd did not produce Pink Moon, the spare final album that Boyd views as Drake's defiant gesture. Boyd shares keen insights into Nick Drake's idiosyncratic chord fingerings, why he struggled to connect with live audiences, how he was unassertive yet stubborn and ambitious, and how his lack of commercial success plagued him. Boyd also previews his upcoming book about the intersection of world music and Western culture, and he details his own approach to producing. Why do Fairport Conventions, Nick Drake's, and so many other Boyd-produced records sound timeless? Is it because his priority was to keep the music sounding real? Please enjoy part one of this deep-diving carol pop conversation with Joe Boyd. Thank you so much for doing this. I really uh, appreciate it. You've produced and and put out a lot of just the great music that I listen to all the time. And 
and also uh white bicycles is one of the great music memoirs and i'm looking forward to this this other book that you're you're still working on it sounds like or i don't know if you're still yeah, working on yeah it. i've been working on it for a very long time I'm, I'm so keen to get it finished but i've i've read a number of books where you get about 75 or 80 percent of the way through and you either feel that the author got fed up or the editor cracked the whip and <laughs> said, we need it now. Right. And the, and the last 20% sort of isn't quite as good as the first three quarters. And I'm determined that this is not going to be like that. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to keep to the same rigor as when I started. So white bicycles, your first book really covers, you know, your work through the six in the sixties and early seventies. And, um, this one is more about sort of the intersection of world music and Western culture. Yeah. It's about this circular interaction in a way, but I mean, it's not academic. It's all personality, anecdote, um, history, you know, mixture of music and politics, um, it, it really began with two, I had two thoughts <laughs> a dozen years ago after I finished White Bicycles and people asked me, oh, you're going to write a book about the 70s now? And I said, oh, no, no way. <laughs> the, 70, the 70s was a disastrous decade for me. I didn't really, I mean, I had a couple of hits, but otherwise it was kind of a struggle and not very satisfying. I didn't have an arc of a story to tell about the 70s. But I sort of felt that I knew some stuff about all this music everybody loved from abroad that nobody knew and that was surprising and startling to them. One of them being, you know, when after great in the wake of Graceland, everybody loved Ladysmith Black Mombazo and love. Right you know, Mahatini and the Mahotel of Queens. And the big controversy was whether Paul had broken the boycott and stuff like that. And everybody felt so virtuous by loving Ladysmith and that they were supporting the imprisoned Mandela by buying Mahatini records. When in fact, in South Africa, all the ANC comrades were listening to disco and the and Ladysmith and Mahlatini were the sort of soundtrack for uh, the Zulus who were being armed by the South African government to go kill the ANC. And so it was this music which the liberals were endorsing, which, which is fantastic music and, and worth being embraced and bought. But nonetheless, politically, it was on the other side. It was the enemy. Huh of Mandela. And I thought, well, this is the kind of thing <laughs> that people ought to know. And of course, when you go into any kind of music, there's things like that. Anywhere you dig, it's, it's, there's fascinating historical elements to the music and cultural backgrounds and loop feedback loops and influences that you know, people are just completely unaware of. And, um, you know, the way that, I mean, just sticking to South Africa, 
you know, the, the first big South African wave was penny whistle music. That There was a big thing in the 50s, you know, there was a couple of hits of penny whistle music, which was very joyful and jolly and wonderful. And these little African kids playing these little flagellets, kind of little six-hole metal flutes. And all their style is based on Benny Goodman records. <laughs> That's who huh. they were obsessed with. That's who they were following. And, you know, so, I mean, it's just full of stuff like that. Everywhere you turn, there's things like that that are just kind of fascinating and they're political and cultural. So that's the book. Anyway, and it's a fuck, it's a doorstop. <laughs> <laughs> so you've already written a fair amount of this, I assume. I've written 90% of it. And so I'm coming down the home stretch. And, uh, oh. And it's you know I've got a I got a great deal from an English publisher I haven't shopped it yet in America but I will be doing that this autumn so can't wait to read that book it seems like the whole history of music and the development of music has to do with that sort of cross cultural pollination yeah. and cross continental pollination I mean you know and, and you're you're an American who's been living in England. Uh, and, you know, now Germany for how long? I mean, it's been, what, yeah, 60 I left, years? I, I, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of years in America in, the, in between. I lived in New York and in L.A. and in San Francisco and different places at different times. But I've always been based in London since 1965. Yeah. And, and you, were, you, grew, you grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, yeah. And you were, but you, but your love of music came from sort of discovering the blues, right? And well, yeah, I mean, it, it goes back a little. I mean, this is, this may sound a little pretentious, but it goes back a little bit further because my grandmother was a, a concert pianist who then, you know, got married and abandoned her concert career, but became a teaching assistant to Arthur Schnabel in Berlin, who was one of the great classical teacher pianists and teachers and and she was studied with Leszczynski in Vienna and you know so she was a real kind of emissary from the 19th century classical world and when I was a kid I used to sit under the piano and listen to her play mm. and the, and the Leszczynski school is all about the singing right hand where you kind of you play the the notes with equal strength, but you make the melody sing with the way your technique in the right hand. And I later realized that that was always my obsession when I was mixing records, was to get all the instruments to this equal level, but make the melody sing. And I never thought about that connection huh. until I read a book about Schnabel and kind of realized, oh, that's what my grandmother was on about. Yeah. And it was embedded in you at a very young age. Yeah. And then I and then I just and then um, I discovered jazz and blues and my brother and I and uh, we had a, a friend, Jeff Muldor, was a, we grew up in the same town and the three of us used to go collecting old 78s and spending every weekend listening to old records and obsessing about that kind of stuff. And eventually you ended up in, in London and, um, you know, we're corner, corner of like the, the legendary now, uh, UFO club and, and, and it's your association with a lot, you're American who's living there, but your association with a lot of these bands are, 
it seemed like a lot of the bands, um, like the British Invasion bands, were the ones that were taking sort of American R&B and putting their own spin on it, like the, the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks. Um, and it seems like you were drawn to more of these British bands that were maybe not using those influences so much and and maybe had a harder time, in, in some cases at least, uh, translating back over to the States because, you know, a band like, you know, Pink Floyd and Sid Barrett was, was very English and, uh, you know, Fairport convention later. Um, I don't know whether this is something that was sort of intentional or sort of a, a coincidence that you were drawn to, you know, that kind of music. Well, I don't know if, I mean, I, you know, these things, you never sort of sit down and chart out a, a path and say, I'm going to go after this kind of music. I think, you know, when I first went over there in 1965, I was working for Electro, well, that was the second, my, I've been over before working for George Ween as a tour manager with American blues artists. And, um, and when I came back, I was, I managed to wangle myself a job opening the Electra Records office in London. And Paul Rothschild was putting together a blues um, compilation in America with four tracks from Butterfield and four tracks from Loving Spoonful and some tracks from Al Cooper and, and um, Tom Rush with Electric Band and stuff like that. And uh, so I said, listen, I'm going to be in England, save three or four tracks for me. I'll find an English blues band and we'll, you know. And so I ended up recording Eric Clapton, Stevie Winwood's, Paul Jones singing Crossroads and a few other tunes, which went on this, this compilation called What's Shaking. And so my first, that was my first ever record session as a producer. Right. Was so I I wasn't prejudiced against I was f thrilled with what the English were doing with blues the fact that the English audiences loved it but pretty much the blues boom was kind of over by the time I really set out to be an independent producer and I was very fortunate I fell into the whole underground scene and met Pink Floyd and and then at UFO, we were in a fantastic position because everybody wanted to play UFO. So un unknown band, I mean, you know, it became the hip place to play, even though we didn't pay very much money. Once you played UFO, you could then be booked all around the university, you know, circuit in America, in, in Britain. And, you know, I, I, I was, I was actually, when I heard Fairport, I was rather resistant to them because they, I didn't, I was never a big fan of the whole singer songwriter, but I know it sounds weird because I've made a lot of those kind of records in my life, but I was, when it first started, the whole thing of middle-class white guys with a guitar singing about hmm. being on the road again and leaving their girl behind like a, you know, like a Mississippi, you know, field worker going to Chicago, you know, it struck me as a bit stupid. And I didn't, I was much more interested in the real tradition. And, but of course, maybe that was a good thing because it meant that I had a high filter. My default position was I didn't like singer-songwriters. <laughs> <laughs> and so anyone that kind of, I did end up recording with somebody who really overcame my 
structural resistance to that form. And the Fairport kind of annoyed me at first because they sang a lot. Of, they sang Eric Anderson songs and Phil Oak songs and and uh, you know um, and and then of course I then I met Joni Mitchell at Newport and I thought she was pretty great. And so I played. I got a tape of her songs. I helped her find a publisher in England, and help and had a tape of her songs. And Fairport started singing her songs. I thought, well, that's better. And but mainly it was Richard Thompson. You know, he was such an amazing guitar player. I didn't really mind what kind of songs he was playing. But then when they Sandy Denny joined it, it, and she started bringing this English traditional feeling into the music. And then Dave Swarbrick joined and. And the whole thing took on a very, what for me was fascinating kind of turn. And that was really exciting. Well, with Fairport, there's there's this kind of tragedy mixed in with sort of the evolution of it. And then there's this car crash uh, in which yeah. the, the drummer was killed and Richard Thompson's girlfriend was killed. And it's, I mean, I read, I, Richard was my first guest on, on this podcast, actually, and I'd read his memoir as well. And sort of seeing how quickly they went back into the studio and then did Legion Leaf was like sort of stunning how fast it happened. It was kind of like this move where they really went from, you know, some of those American folk influences to just totally British influence. And and I don't know whether these two events are kind of related to each well, other. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the way that I see it, which is maybe you know, my own view and slightly perhaps oversimplistic, but, and I must say, reading Richard's book, I found the description of the crash hair-raising. I mean, it was Absolutely. so horrible. And, and I realized that I'd never really heard those details before, that they didn't want to talk about it at the time. And I didn't cross-examine them. You know, we, you know, Martin was dead Jeannie was dead. Ashley was in the hospital. You know, it was a terrible time. And their first thought was, it's over. We're, Fairport will not reform. We're not going to play Fairport music with a new drummer, period. You know, but I think once Ashley got out of hospital and once they had a chance to recover from the shock a little bit, Although, you know, but as Richard says in the book, it, it took years, really. They thought, well, we have to do something. We have to make a living. We have to, you know. And I think they've made a vow. They got together and they made a decision. And they told me that we're never going to play the repertoire of Unhalf Bricking and what we did on our holidays and the first record. That's over. We're never going to teach a drummer to play those tunes, mm. play Martin's parts. It's just not going to happen. So we need a new repertoire. We need a whole new repertoire of songs. And that moment, that spring, when this all happened, was when Big Pink came out. Music from Big Pink. Right, the band. Yeah. And every musician in London had that record. I mean, that record hit like a bomb. You know, uh, it wasn't a big commercial hit, but every musician 
bought that record. And every member of Fairport had that record. And they were just, they couldn't stop listening to it. And I think the idea of putting together a new repertoire that was similar, that was in the same kind of genre, if you will, as the previous repertoire, meaning a mixture of Dylan songs and Joni Mitchell songs and some of their own songs, which might be a little Anglo-American in style. You can't do that in the face of Big Pink. Big Pink laid it down. It was like, this is how you play American wow. music. This is how you play Dylan-esque music or where Dylan meets American roots. This is how it goes. Don't even think about trying to compete with it. And, and I think that it also, it not only intimidated them away from a kind of American-ish tinged repertoire, but they also felt, well, wait a minute. Maybe what we should do is something that is as British as music from Big Pink is American. And so that's really the genesis of, of, um, of Legion Leaf. So even I, this incredibly British album, this incredibly English record is influenced by this cross-continental, you know, force. It's them adapting this mostly Canadian band's take on yeah. American music by yeah. going totally English in England. And one of the, one of the other f things that I found in retrospect, particularly thinking about it and watch and going to hear them every once in a while at Crop Ready or at, I put on a kind of reunion concert at the Barbican one year, about 15, 10 years ago, and listening to them play. I mean, there's such an incredible rhythm section. You know, Matex, Peg, or Ashley, Simon Nickel, Richard, you know, that foursome. Right absolutely extraordinary but if you listen to them and you realize that the key to legion leaf and to everything they did one of the keys was matex because you know i think when they auditioned drummers i don't know whether they had this consciously as an idea or whatever but they ended up with a guy who was not a rock drummer his background was in strict tempo dance bands, you know, like tea dances and mecca ballroom dances where people do swing and, you know, stuff like that. And, right. And he didn't, he, he was a dance drummer. And so he took those melodies of, you know, English country dancing or Celtic dance music, which is what the basis of many of the melodies are. Even when they wrote their own songs, they used dance melodies, traditional melodies, Crazy Man Michael and things like that. And it's dance, it's traditional English, British dance music. And Mattex plays it so differently than a rock drummer would have. And I always get sort of a headache when I hear folk rock bands doing jigs and reels with a drummer playing the backbeat like this. And, you know, it's just, it, it, Mattox took it to a different level. And that to me is one of the things that made it work. Yeah. He's one of the great drummers that a lot of people don't know about and, and obviously continued, 
for and continues for a long time to you know be on those records and he's on those later richard thompson records as well yeah he's on an he's on an xtc album i mean um but he's and, and when you watch him too it's fascinating to to sort of yeah sit no, and see how he's, he's playing he's remarkable how much pressure was there on these bands in england to make it in america i mean you know you also embrace the incredible string band uh and produced a lot of their work and they were very british and very not what was being listened to in the states i know you were you were very interested in the move i don't think you were able to sign the move but they're another one of these bands that's sort of legendary for how great people thought they were and how they sort of didn't really make it overseas for some reason like how much was that sort of looming over the creation of the work well i think everybody knew that america was the gold mine america was the I mean, England is Britain is a small market compared to America, and America has the glamour and the money and the and the fame and all of that, you know. So it's 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 part of the deal. And I think, but those two examples you have are, had very different results. I mean, yes, I I love the move, um, but by the time they ended up in America, um, they kind of lost it. You know, they lost various members. Right. And I think the original lineup that I used to see, I used to go see them all the time in London at the Marquee Club. They had a weekly residence on them, like a Tuesday night or something. And um, and I used to go see them. They were fantastic. But they had, um, you know, I think their bass player, Ace Kefford, went off the rails at some point quite fairly early on. And um, and so they never and, you know, and I think their manager, Tony Secunda, was a very odd guy. And um, and he never really. Pushed them into that America. I mean, I think he was waiting for the hit, waiting for the record, the record company backing. And somehow that didn't really work. Decca didn't anyway. But the Incredible String Band, quite the contrary. We had a bigger American career than we did Amer British. Um, and um, one in the year 1969, I think, or the year from, I don't know, June 69 to June 70 or something. Uh, no, I think actually, I think the year 1969, we filled the Fillmore in San Francisco twice, the Fillmore East twice, and Lincoln mm. Center once, all in one year, and played you know, everywhere in between. And it was, they were sort of huge. And it's it's a bit depressing to me that of all the 60s bands, you know, they have been the least remembered and the least revived and the least box-setted and, uh, and you know, um, analyzed and, and everything. It's, 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 it's a shame because I think they... They're sort of they had this image of floral hippiness that is the aspect of the 60s that people are the least comfortable remembering. Huh. You know, I think everybody loves thinking about Street Fighting Man and the big festival Woodstock and the the Haight Ashbury and stuff like that, but not but not the sort of rural flower power, you know, sort of thing. And, and you know, that aspect of the Beatles, you know, the, all the their trip to Rishikish and, and the, you know, draped in flowers and all of that is the least often cited or 
or shown of the Beatles. You know, their image, people love their beardy late Abbey Road image or their early mop top, you know, image. But the sort of mid, that sort of hippie period there, people don't really print those photographs very much. I think, I think it's the least easy for the modern day to, to look back at. Anyway, I don't know. Don't get me started. Interesting. Well, they, and they, I mean, I think people think of, look back on Woodstock as like sort of the apex of the kind of peace and love thing, even though Summer of Love was obviously earlier than that. They had, they were supposed to have a better slot on Woodstock and kind of got bumped. And I'm a very strong believer and don't look back, don't regret. There's no regrets. I don't, I, I'm happy, comfortable with everything that's happened in my life, except, <laughs> you know, Friday night at Woodstock. It's so unfortunate. They had just, you know, they'd added the two girls to the lineup and Rose played electric bass and they had started electrifying their instruments. They had, and we had amps and Mike had a pickup on his sitar and Robin had a little pickup on his gimbri and, and that was the, you know, they, and they were really rolling with that lineup and they sounded great and it was fine. It was working really well. And we were scheduled to be on right at prime time on Friday night, just before Joan Baez. And um, it was perfect. The atmosphere was magic. It was just absolutely the perfect moment for the incredible string band. And then it started to rain. And you can see in the film, you know, the, they had a little tiny scrim over the, over the stage. It barely could stop two raindrops, you know. And so the stage was getting soaked. It wasn't a really, it wasn't a downpour, but it was a steady rain. Right. And they couldn't play their electric instruments in the rain. They would get elect electrocuted. And so we were weighing up the alternative of basically letting it be an old-fashioned ISB show with Robin and Mike playing their acoustic guitars and the girls kind of standing around to the side and singing a bit of harmony. And then John Morris, who was a friend of mine, who was one of the producers, said, well, you know, we can get you a slot tomorrow afternoon. And the weather forecast is sunshine. And we can take you out by helicopter now and bring you back in by helicopter and get you back out to the he to by helicopter by five o'clock. And we, there's a plane that can get you to New York because we had a gig Saturday night in New York. And it suddenly in that moment, everybody turned to me and said, let's go for Saturday. And I said, okay, Saturday it is. And that moment has haunted me. Mm. <laughs> As, you know, if they'd played just acoustic in the rain, you know, Melanie took our slot. Candles in the rain made her career, you know. And, um, and we ended up staying the night in a tent because they couldn't get us out. And then the next, anyway, don't even get me started. It was just very unfortunate. And the film cameras were going Friday night, but not Saturday? Well, they were going on Saturday, but we came back on Saturday. We followed canned heat. And the whole atmosphere was like a blast of hot sun and everybody tripping out and the dust rising. And it was rock and roll time, you know, people dancing in the dust. And we came on with Rose, you know, playing her flute and, you know, uh, right after canned heat, you know, sort of heavyweight. Yeah. And it just didn't work. 
So we're on the film. There's film of their performance there, but you don't want to look at it. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I want to. I want to go back and pick up two other things from the '60s. Uh, since we're talking about concerts, uh, you worked at the Newport Folk Festival of '65, and you mentioned also that was where you know Dylan went electric. So, what was your reaction, just as a music person, to what Dylan was doing at that time? I was excited. I thought it was cool. You know, I I was. Um, you know, how could you, I mean, I, for six weeks, I was at new station based in Newport, six or seven weeks, because we had to prepare for the jazz festival. Now we had to prepare the folk festival. There were three weeks before each one. And I, and there, there was a local car dealer, which gave us a fleet of cars. So I had like this huge Oldsmobile or something that I would drive out from downtown Newport to the field back and forth two or three, four times a day. And they had a fantastic radio and WPRO in Providence was the local top 40 station. And, you know, top 40 was, Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds, Like a Rolling Stone by Dylan, six and a half minutes long. I mean, that was a soundtrack of the drive out to the, you know, so right. that music was all over my, you know, all over us, you know, and, and like a Rolling Stone sounded fantastic on the radio. You know, I'd been the one like six months earlier who took Paul Rothschild to Chicago where he signed Butterfield. And, and I had been sort of sitting in the corner at the Newport Folk Foundation meeting when Peter Yarrow bullied Alan Lomax and Pete Seeger into inviting Butterfield after the deadline, there was a deadline for, you know, for groups being booked. And Yarrow made this case they were multiracial, they were the, you know, they were the epitome of what Newport was about, blah, blah, blah. And he bullied the older generation into having Butterfield on the bill. And so I was excited about that. I was thrilled <laughs> with the fist fight between Albert Grossman and Alan Lomax. <laughs> and I was, you know, I was on the side of the youth. But I also, at the afterwards, you know, in the aftermath, which was devastating, you know, which everybody was basically crushed. It was so horrible. I felt so sorry for Pete Seeger and I felt very sorry for Newport and I felt it was the end of something because in a way, you know, the Newport existed in a bubble. It was a, everybody got paid $25. They slept in dorms. They got free food, blue singers just out of Angola prison, even prisoners. We had Texas prisoners. Pete Seeger found a huge tree for them to chop on stage on Saturday night. You know, it was a fantastic event, a wonderful event. And Dylan destroyed it. Hmm. Because, because in a way it was the, it was the, it was the meeting of show business, career move. I mean, you know, Newport was all, always sort of a career move. I mean, people, Mississippi John Hurt, nobody had ever heard of him. 63, he appears in the fog right after Doc Watson. 
and you know the next year every folk festival and coffee house on the east coast was booking mississippi john hurt and doc watson so there was always an element of newport as a showcase for your career but now this is top 40 this is the hit parade this is dylan at number one you know it's it's another level it's another thing and it could never really be quite this innocent again and i knew it and i loved what dylan was doing and i felt it was tragic wow i hadn't i hadn't thought of it just in terms of the impact that it had on sort of what it left behind you know i always sort of thought well music evolves and of course you know dylan was doing this great you know revolutionary thing at the time but but well, yeah it does blow it up it's true but you know it, it was just and you know i mean and and i sympathize with alan lomax i mean he was running this blues workshop which had sun house and robert pete williams and i don't know a few other people I, i'm not sure who was there that year but incredible wonderful artists you know and then you know the, the festival committee had to find a place for butterfield to play they said well let's he can play at the end of the blues workshop we'll stick him on to the end of the blues workshop like going from the country to the city and so all in the last set of this acoustic blues i'm up there on stage lining up amps and Lomax is giving us dirty looks. And, and you know, and there's white kids coming out holding guitars, you know, with big amps, following these, you know, African-American geniuses. And I understand why Lomax was furious. I totally understand. And yet at the time, I was 23. And... Rebellion was cool. You know, we were, and, and Butterfield was great. You know, he, there was a great band. It was just, in a way, the whole thing started with Peter Yarrow, who was managed by Albert Grossman, doing a favor for the stable by forcing Butterfield onto the bill. Hmm. If he hadn't been forced onto the bill, this never would have happened because there wouldn't have been anybody for Dylan to play with. He only played that Maggie's Farm and that three, those three electric thing because Butterfield was set up on stage. They opened that evening show. And once again, it's that cross-cultural, you know, forces in music that sort of pushes everything forward, but also kind of leaves this devastation behind it. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, it's change. It happens everywhere. What was Sid Barrett like at that time, just in terms of someone to produce? He was great. I mean, he was... Uh, eccentric but he was he was quiet he, you know roger was the dominant was the alpha male in the band the one who i talked to the most uh, but i talked i got along great with sid i really liked sid and he i think he liked me and one of the nice i mean many many years later one of the other guys said in an interview that he felt that 
Sid probably would have been more comfortable with me as producer than he was with Smith. And that maybe, you know, he wouldn't have gone so off the rails. But, you know, but if Sid had been the dominant, the lead figure in, in the group and hadn't left and Gilmore had never arrived, <laughs> you know, Pink Floyd might not have been the behemoth that they became, you know, because in a way it was it was very English, Pink Floyd, as you said at the beginning, you know, they right. had, they didn't really connect to an American audience as instantly with Sid as they did later on, you know, with Dave. When, when you listen to their work, uh, specifically with Sid still, uh, after, you know, you weren't able to produce them anymore, did you think, oh, I would have done, they, I would have done this differently, they would have sounded different, or somehow the trajectory would have changed if you had been behind the boards? Well, you know, I have to say I was sort of expecting to have those sorts of thoughts when I heard Piper at the Gates of Dawn, but I thought it was a pretty good record. I thought Norman Smith did a pretty good job, and I thought, and I actually think Bike on that record is my favorite Pink Floyd track, and it's brilliantly done. I mean, a lot of it was them, you know, their ideas. I know I knew that, you know, that Roland gadget that they used, you know, for the repeats and all the sound effects and everything on that record. And so I don't know how much Norman had to do with it, but it was well done. It was well produced. And um, and I just think, I don't know, that I probably, if Sid and I, <laughs> you know, had stuck around, it probably would have been more of a quirky band of songs, although, you know, I also produced the soundtrack for Let's All Make Love Tonight in London, where they did uh, Interstellar Overdrive, the first version of Interstellar Overdrive. So I'm, you know, I was very conscious of trying to balance, you know, what they sounded like live with these extended jams, extended passages and right. Sid songs. And, you know, the, the break in the middle of Arnold Lane is our you know, not entirely successful, but, you know, l attempt to bring that atmosphere into the middle of a three minute pop single. And it kind of works, you know, but it was, but, you know, this was before Grateful Dead started putting out records and before, I mean, Floyd was a pioneer. They, they, they put out these extended tracks. This was when you still, LPs were still a series of three-minute tracks. Piper is such a fascinating record because it has these extended sort of spacey explorations. I don't even want to call them jams. And uh, and then these like really tight little three-minute British pastoral, you know, out in the garden with your gnomes kind of fairy tale songs. Yeah. But, you know, I think that was what they did brilliantly live was to use these melodies of SIDS as jumping off points. You know, what is it? Chapter 24 is a perfect one, you know, which is a thing from the I Ching is, is a perfect SID mysterious Zen kind of song that is a jumping off point for an exploration of instrumental space, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. 
at that point and moving forward, what was your sort of philosophy as a producer? Like, what were you trying to do when you got in the studio with a, with a band or artist? I don't know that I had an overarching philosophy. I think I, I wanted things to sound real. I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I was always, whenever uh, periodically musicians would say, I want my guitar solo to pan from right to left and back. <laughs> and I would say, no, no, we're not going to do that. I always wanted a listener to be able to close their eyes and imagine themselves with the best seat at this concert, right virtually in the front of the band and to be able to picture a realistic image of the music surrounding them and the sound to be warm and the sound to be, as I said before, with everything audible, but the melody somehow, the thing that you want to hear singing out in a nice way. My favorite thing was mixing harmonies, vocal harmonies. I always loved those. And I always felt like I would always argue, particularly at live shows with the house and house engineer, or sometimes in the studio with an engineer, I would always want to push the second voice and the third voice up to be almost just 99% of the level of the lead voice. So that those voices vibrate together uh, and that harmony has a richness to it. I was very, it was very nice. I, I haven't actually read the whole book. I did those, that classic thing. Chris Blackwell just put out a, a, a book and uh, I haven't read it yet because I've got so much reading to do for my own book that I haven't got time to read something that isn't research. Um, but I looked myself up in the index, of course. Of course. And... <laughs> And I went to, and he, you know, he's very nice about me. And he's very, you know, he talks about the way we work together and Nick Drake and all of that. And, um, but he says something very nice and very, what I particularly like, because I've, I sort of always felt this way, but I haven't, it sort of feels a little, perhaps a little pretentious to say so. But the fact that he said it means I get to say it. He was really interested when he first met me because he found that I was the only producer he knew who, when he made a record, was thinking about what it would sound like 50 years from now instead of tomorrow. Yeah. And that's true. That, I, that was always, that's why I didn't let the guitar players pan the solo from right to left. <laughs> Because I, I knew that that would go out of fashion very quickly. And I wanted to be able to listen to this record 10, 20, 30 years later and not feel, oh, that's that, that's that stupid thing they used to do in 1969, you know. So last night I put on this really beautiful um, vinyl reissue of Five Leaves Left, the, the first Nick Drake record. And it's exactly what you were just talking about. Like, there's this clarity and warmth to it and i was just like thinking you know that it just sounds great and and my wife was was listening too and and she said this she said this is just timeless and so it's absolutely what you were just talking about that there's something totally timeless about you know this what now 50 year old nick drake record there's another aspect to that nick is a sort of a special case because i think one of the reasons for that one of the things i mean maybe maybe it's not but it's possible that one of the reasons why people talk, they use that word about Nick a lot, timeless. And I think one of the reasons, and one of the reasons why generations keep rediscovering him is sadly because he was a failure in his lifetime. 
because, you know, if he had been as successful as I felt at the time he deserved to be, he might have 60s movies, movies from 1971 with Nick Drake soundtracks, and it would have become 60s music somehow. And it would have been much more identified with a time. But because nobody bought the records at the time, and people only started buying the records in the late 70s and the early 80s, um, it's kind of free of its time. It's liberated from its anchor in history. It's sort of, it, it gets rediscovered by successive generations. But also, I have to say, I think, Nick's music is also, I mean, there's, there's, he was not of his time. He was a very unique musician. He was, he, you know, he'd listened to Bob Dylan. He'd listened to Donovan. He'd listened to Davy Graham, but he was equally interested in Joao Gilberto and Miles Davis and Django Reinhardt and, and in his mother. You know, his mother, if you listen to Molly Drake's records and you listen to the way she frames a piano chord and then listen to Nick, you know, he's make, playing on the guitar. He's playing the shapes of chords that his mother played. And she was kind of an amateur who was a big fan of Noel Coward. You know, so you have a lot of different influences there, which are not the sort of influences that most people had in the 19 in the late 60s huh there are a lot of records from that era where if they have strings on them they're strings that sound really dated like it's like it's a 70s string section or at least yeah. and and this is all kind of paired back and like each and and this is sort of what you were talking about earlier each part sings on its own and it's not this kind of wash in the background yeah. of you know the singer songwriter you know string section you know sort of lifting yeah. them up on a cloud or something yeah and a lot of that you know i mean i we have to give a lot of credit to um robert kirby and uh, and john wood um robert kirby was nick's friend who was a you know, sort of early music student at Cambridge. And he was he was into Baroque string quartets, you know. And so when Nick asked him to write some arrangements for his music, he didn't have, he, he wasn't thinking um, Henry Mancini, you know. <laughs> he was thinking Purcell. <laughs> and, and so there's a whole different, sensibility that's very British and nothing to do with what's going on in pop music at that time. He didn't really listen or hear Kirby. And then, of course, John Wood was a wonder, you know, is still a wonderful engineer who was trained as a classical engineer. You know, he, he, he hadn't really done much acoustic popular music when I turned, you know, I went to that studio because Electra had a series, when I was working for Electra, they had a series of Sounds of the Zodiac, which are kind of instrumental records. They had 12 volumes, you know, like Sagittarius LP, an LP of Sagittarius music, which was basically some guy, you know, writing stuff with a rhythm section, a string section. And they, they cut it in London 
because the strings were much cheaper than in New York. And they used sound techniques. And I, as my one of my jobs at Electra was I had to take the payroll down to pay the string players in cash. And so at the end of the evening, I'd be there and I'd hand out the and I got to know John Wood doing that. And I thought, oh, it's a nice room. And so I brought Pink Floyd there and I brought Incredible String Band there and I brought, you know, Fairport there. And then I, I, I brought Nick there and John learned with me. We learned together. I, I knew about the music. He knew about the sound and we kind of learned together. What was Nick like in the studio? Was he sort of assertive in how he wanted things to sound? Stubborn. He was very stubborn, but I wouldn't say he was assertive. He sometimes would. Um, I mean, you know, when we first started, we th- he agreed that we should have strings. He liked that idea. And I didn't. I mean, it, again, he in the first meeting when I said, I hear. You know, I was very influenced by the first Leonard Cohen album, John Simon's production on that. And the strings and the backing voices and the close miking and all of that. And um, and so immediately when I heard Nick, I said, I think there's a, we could have some strings, some instruments on this. And he said, absolutely, I'm, I agree. He didn't tell me that he'd already played a May Ball at Cambridge with a string quartet. Hmm. He didn't say that. So I went ahead and bo- I called up Peter Asher and said, Who's, what's that guy that you hired for the James Taylor album, the first one on Apple? And he gave me the name and the number, and I, we went and we hired him, and we, he did a session. And um, it didn't work. It didn't sound right. And Nick was nervous he was looking at me and John and I think hoping that we would say it didn't sound good because he didn't like it. And we looked at him and we said, no, 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 I don't think this works. And then Nick said, well, actually, I know a guy in Cambridge. Maybe he can do it. And Nick, by that time, I'd learned how unassertive Nick was. And so when he put something forward like that, I went, oh, well, actually, I think I better pay attention. Because Nick doesn't say things casually. He only says something. He only puts himself forward when he's very sure. And um, so I went up to Cambridge and met Robert Kirby, and we worked out a deal, and he did the, the first session, and it was brilliant. So you did two albums together. You did Brighter Later also, but you did not produce Pink Moon, which was him sort of wanting everything stripped back. What was, it, what was the reason that you, were, you didn't uh, produce that one? Because I moved to California. It's a totally practical reason. Because yeah. um, when I talked to Richard Thompson about those records, he, he talked about being very worried about Nick when he heard Pink Moon. Well, yeah. I mean, so was I. But, you know, and I thought it was kind of disastrous that he would make a record like that because I couldn't see. And, and of course, it sells more than the other two today. Right. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know. I think, I think, I mean, obviously the Volkswagen ad is part of it. I think, you know, that's one of those things that just sent, sent it off out into space as a successful album. And so people hear it and people know it and tell their friends and it spreads and spreads. But, the more you listen to it, the more, the more you realize what a brilliant record it is and how 
the simplicity sort of and and of course you know i mean now this is now years ago but i mean in the years the decade immediately following the volkswagen ad i used to get letters sometimes quite impolite <laughs> letters and then later emails from people saying what are you going to put out the five leaves left and brighter later with all that crap on them just nick and guitar you know and i'd answer them i'd say well <laughs> i'm afraid you're out of luck because you know those records were made live in the studio mostly and you can't put out just nick and guitar because there's you know other instruments coming down all the microphones i mean people right. a lot of people weren't familiar with the way we used to make records in those days we didn't do everything one instrument at a time we did it all together but also i said even if we could i wouldn't because those arrangements were nick's as much as anybody's you know he worked with robert kirby very very closely and they were very prepared together they would sit in cambridge and work things out and robert would play things on the piano and rick would say yes no and i the only time i really experienced that was when we robert said he couldn't do Riverman. And uh, he later told me, it was very simple, it was because he'd never dealt with 5-4 time before. Hmm. And just it just frazzled him. He couldn't deal with it. I thought it was more the harmonics and the fact that Nick wanted it to sound like Delius and that Robert, being a Baroque guy, didn't have the chops to do Delius. Anyway, John Wood sent us to... Uh, Harry Robinson, who was a brilliant arranger. And we sent Harry a tape of Riverman. And then we came a few days later, Nick and I, to visit him. And Nick brought his guitar. And we played the tape. And Nick sat there with his guitar. And over the tape of him singing and playing Riverman, he played chords. And those are the chords that you hear in the string arrangement of Harry Robinson's arrangement of Riverman. Because he basically showed Harry the kind of voicings and the kind of sounds and the kind of shapes of the string parts that he wanted to hear. And Harry made notes and, you know, and he expanded it and did. But he, and he said, you want Delius? I'll give you Delius. And that's what he did. And but Nick was very, very involved. And so um, anybody who says, you know, this is some producer imposing all these arrangements on poor old Nick, um, that's not true. However, <laughs> I have to confess that I think when it came, you know, to two, three of the tracks that are my favorites on Brighter Later that still to this day are my favorites are the two with John Cale and the one with Chris McGregor, um, the sort of middle three tracks on the second side of Brighter Later. I'm not, you know, those were sort of, those weren't Robert Kirby and they weren't Nick with Danny Thompson. They weren't people that he knew. Paul Harris, he had a huge amount of trust in. He loved Paul Harris's piano playing. And he and Paul had a great relationship. And I think, you know, 
John Cale just heard a Nick Trank track and said, I've got to do something with him and went over to his house. And the next day we were in the studio and we did Northern Sky and Fly. And I thought it was brilliant. And Nick kind of went, mm, yeah, okay. And then when he was recording um, Poor Boy, Chris McGregor, which just happened to be in the studio because we were mixing an album before the Nick session. And I just thought this could be interesting. Let's try. So Chris went down just to do a trial and we did one take and that's Poor Boy. And I thought it works. I think it works brilliantly, but I'm not sure Nick ever really loved those tracks the way he loved the others. Hmm. That they kind of got away from him a little bit. And I think Pink Moon may have been. And I think maybe even with Robert, maybe even the brass. You know, and the and the sort of bigness of the arrangements on Chime of City Clock and Hazy Jane, you know, I don't know. He definitely was stubborn and kind of glum at the end of Brighter Later. And I think Pink Moon was his defiant gesture. Do you think that the lack of commercial success was something that affected him a lot? Huge, hugely. He wanted to be a star. He wanted to be a success. He wanted to be able to pay to leave home. <laughs> you know, he wanted, and he and he also knew, I think, that he was never, it was never going to work for him to go out to clubs as an unknown and sell an audience on Nick Drake. But, the, you know, it's so delicate those th those situations you know because when he opened for fairport when they had their big come back after the car accident and they played the repertoire of legion leaf for the very first time in public it was a f uh, festival hall and john beverly martin opened and, the and fairport only had enough songs for half a show because that's all they've been able to, they've worked up enough songs for an album, 40-minute album, 40-minute half. Right. And so we had, you know, it was a witch season evening, John and Beverly, Nick Drake, Fairport. And the audience was completely respectful. You know, they knew what Fairport had been through. They knew about the accident. They knew about the new repertoire. They knew... They were the devotees. They were very respectful. And so when Nick came on, they never heard of him. But they sat in their seats. Nobody got up to get a drink. They just sat silently. And they listened to him with great interest and respect. And he got a huge ovation and did an encore. And that was a fateful moment because my whole team, my office, from which season we were all there and we all went yes this is going to work and we sent nick out on gigs and that didn't work because that atmosphere that sort of moment wasn't there he you know people clinking glasses going to get beers talking he had no jokes he tuned he had to reach every song of nick's had a different guitar tuning and in 1969 70 there were no guitar wrestlers, you know, that 
would right. go into your second and third Martin and bring him, run them. Uh, you know, we didn't have that sort of money, and nobody did that in those days. That's it for episode 57 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Joe Boyd for transporting us to Newport and London and the UFO Club and digging into his groundbreaking work with Pink Floyd, Fairport Convention, The Incredible String Band, and Nick Drake. If you want to learn more about this period, I highly recommend Boyd's book, White Bicycles, Making Music in the 1960s. It remains available in paperback and as audio and ebooks. And if you want to make a soundtrack of this episode, go to Fairport Convention's What We Did on Our Holidays on Half Bricking and Legion Leaf, Nick Drake's Five Leaves Left and Brighter Later, the incredible string band's early albums such as The Hangman's Beautiful Daughter, and of course, Pink Floyd's Arnold Lane. Come back next week to hear whether Sandy Denny was fired from or quit Fairport Convention, how Boyd wound up producing Richard and Linda Thompson's landmark album, Shoot Out the Lights, why he stopped producing Thompson a few albums later, how he got involved with R.E.M., and how that band's dynamics were like no others. Also making appearances, Aretha Franklin, Stanley Kubrick, Maria Muldaur, and one fluky hit single. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who does know where the time goes. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com for posts about music, movies, and food and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends and come back next week for part two of Joe Boyd. Thanks.